and welcome to this episode of the English for Business interview series live. Thank you for joining us and here's your host, Leonie Tillman. Maybe I can start by asking who loves conflict? And feel free to just to take your, yourselves off mute and have a chat at this point because it's just a small group, but it's kind of an ironic question, I think. <laughs> Addy. Well, I mean, uh, you, you, you don't invite conflict, but it comes to you. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I think whenever there are two human beings involved, there is bound to be a bit of conflict. Yeah. Uh, so whether it is workplace, personal life, uh, yeah, I think... I think the entire Big Boss series thrives on conflict. So, <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's a good point to start with. Actually, to talk about personal life and professional life, I think conflict. When I'm working with it in a classroom, we often talk about personal situations because it's much easier to access the conflict in our personal lives. I think we we have to have it at some point, I guess, in our lives. But in the professional environment, we tend to tippy toe around it a little bit more so sometimes it's an easier access to talk about personal scenarios and I think it's very relatable I think the the same the same tips and tricks and and processes apply Anita Lavinia welcome thanks for joining us I think we're going to dive straight in and then other people can join as they come so, yeah, I'm sort of asking this ironic question of, of who loves conflict. You know, I, I think it's nothing that something that is a bit of a, an inflated statement because most people I come across really don't like it. And as most of you know, I work with a lot of people who are from many different cultures, who speak many different languages and are either working in a Anglo dominant culture or working in a culture that isn't their first cultural language environment. So it just adds extra con confusion and, and challenges, I think, when we're, when we're dealing with conflict. So I think just a few admin things to get the ball rolling. I want this, if, if we stay a fairly intimate group tonight, I'd really appreciate it. If you just ask, don't, don't be shy to take yourselves off mute and ask a question. Don't be, don't be afraid to interrupt us. I often see a lot of the work that I do as I really do want to open the doors and encourage people to interrupt me because I think in the workplace, a lot of people who are, you know, working in a different culture, a different language, it is difficult to interrupt. I know when I speak French, I can be in the conversation on the periphery, but how do I interject and how do I interrupt? So we'll be very kind to you if you interrupt here. I want to encourage you to do so. And if it's awkward, don't worry, just keep going. This is what, this is the platforms that I try and create. I want to create a, a safe place to experiment with these things. So we'll also allow some time at the end for more questions if people have them. You can also have the chat. I've got it open right here in front of me. So I'll keep def deferring my eye to it to check if anyone's got a relevant question while we're running. Um, but equally, I'll try and come back to them. I've also asked if people have questions beforehand. So I've got a bit of a running list of questions there and we'll do our darndest to, to get to those also. I am a big picture thinker, I would say. I love thinking about what is the highest thing I can achieve and go for. And this is why I love conflict, because I like to think about what would the world look like if we were all great at conflict? I kind of wonder, would we have more conflict? Would we have less conflict if we could actually lean into these environments and we weren't afraid of them? Would, would it be easier for all of us? I don't have answers to these problems. <laughs> I just like asking the questions. That's why I invite other people along and I'll introduce you to Paul Larkin in a moment. We'll have a quick chat and then I'll get him to, to talk about himself a little bit so you can know him a little bit better also. But another framing point, I often talk about framing when if anyone's been in my classes, how do you frame what you're going to talk about? How do I hook you in? I think conflict is one of those areas which lends itself very well to personal development. And this is great because we're going to be talking about compassion and compassionate skills tonight. So I'm just going to pop you on mute, Cheryl. 
There we go. And one of the things that Paul and I were talking about was some statistics around compassion skills and your ability to use them in the workplace and therefore reduce your rates of burnout. I work with a lot of people in big four and large banks and challenging organizations. So burnout is a real thing, but maybe Paul, can you, can you speak to that a little bit? What, what is, what is compassion probably what is using compassion in the workplace and maybe something around burnout? Uh, that's a that's a great question. It's a big question. So I will um I will try and break it down. And if anyone's got questions, I'd love to hear them. Um, I saw some good research a few years ago from um, the Victorian state government in Australia, and they had um, had conducted essentially an audit across all of the state-run business departments, state-owned businesses, and found that managers spend on average about sixty percent of their time managing conflict. Um, but almost all of them report having not great training to do it um, and seeing it escalate. And so it begs the question, what is conflict? Um, and the probably the simplest definition is conflict is any time that there is a gap between what's happening right now and what we would like to be happening or what we, what we expected to be happening. Um, and there's a couple of characteristics about it. Um, it's a gap, and it's a gap that matters to us. If it doesn't matter if we're not invested in it, then it's, it's not really going to be a conflict. It's just going to be a gap. That's like when someone changes the photocopy paper in the office. No one notices unless it's bad paper. Uh, and then you've got a conflict where suddenly everyone cares because it's starting to have impacts uh, on them. Um, mm -hmm. The more we're invested, um, that's going to change it. Um, also who we are, we're all different people. We bring with us our personalities, our experiences, our expectations, and just the stress we're under at work or we're under at home. Um, and so different conflicts are going to um, bring out different uh, experiences for all of us. And when we manage a large complex team, then if everyone's having a different experience, they can get pretty complicated pretty quickly. So having some good skills to identify conflicts early and then deal with it compassionately uh, and by compassion, we simply mean struggle with each other and struggle mm -hmm. with ourselves rather than against. Uh, I'm sure we've all been in situations where we've suddenly found ourselves struggling against ourselves or against other people, and it um, it makes conflict a lot harder. Yeah, I mean, this I, this idea is kind of groundbreaking for me, I think. And Paul and I met through a, a mutual client who introduced us. They went out of their way to introduce us because they thought we had such similar interests that we must meet. And it it's probably a good five, six, seven years ago, even now that we've met. And it is this idea, I think, how do we work with conflict and what's the benefits of it and how can we learn to love it? Um, Paul, when I put the title of our webinar together, he actually went, the word love is challenging for him to learn to love conflict. But I thought, let's, let's stay slightly controversial on this because I think it's my challenge to try and get you to at least move more towards the love end of the spectrum around conflict. I have turned to loving conflict, I think, because of the, the big impacts it can have on those big scales. But I want to introduce you properly to Paul. So Paul Larkin is a coach and consultant, and he's working with Next Element, which is a company that I work with too. In fact, he introduced me to this organization and he's the master trainer of Leading Out of Drama, which is a course that I'm a certified facilitator for. And he trained me in this process. So that's why I'm really excited to introduce you to Paul tonight because he's the guy with the goods. He, he knows what's going on with this. And just to clarify as well, Next Element is, an, is a US-based company. So Paul manages this Australia, New Zealand area. Is that right, Paul? Uh, yes, I, I work um, in lots of different places and we do have, um, we've got a network now of, uh, of master trainers in a couple of different um, key regions. So if anyone today is, is in Europe or, um, or elsewhere and they're looking for someone closer, then that's um, something we can direct people to. Yeah, I think... You can just, uh, uh, sorry, Eddie, can you just explain a little bit more about this? Yeah, go ahead. Paul, do you want to talk to that? Do you want us to talk a little bit about the process of learning out of drama, which is the course that we're both involved in? Is that what you mean, Adi? That's right. Yeah. Um, so we will definitely get into it in a little bit more detail. Um, 
but um, leading out of drama is a skills-based behavioral approach to uh, dealing healthily with conflict. Uh, and we're going to talk about some of the different facets of those skills and behaviors uh, as we as we work through. Um, and it's something that uh, is used really extensively both in, um, in corporate environments and healthcare. Um, so um, if we've got any surgeons, uh, anaesthetists, pediatricians here, then that's part of their training. Um, so that's um, it's available for their professional development every year. Paul, that was a, a huge landmark, I think, when you worked with the, the, the how do we call that, the surge, the Committee of Surgeons? Uh, that's there. So the um, the medical fraternity they call them colleges. So they, um, each specialization will have its own college. So the College of Surgeons, uh, anaesthetists, uh, pediatricians, and so on. So, yep. Yeah, how did you come to working with the with that industry, with the medical industry? Because I know you also work in sports and the legal profession as well. Uh, yes. Um, so with regard to healthcare, that was um, that was through a couple of avenues. Primarily, um, one of the other key tools that I use is referred to as the process communication model. So this was developed by NASA to um, better recruit train and then equip astronauts to get put in little tin cans and shot into space uh, and that's become a um, a really important popular part of training through the College of Surgeons uh, and so when Leading Out of Drama was developed which is really a, um, a conflict specific uh, tool set for compassion um, there were some existing relationships there um, in large part due to the Oceania uh, PCM um, organization who've done amazing work uh, and introductions kind of came from there. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible to have it at that level, I think, because the way I work with it and the way I work with culture and conflict isn't that I go out and I tell big organizations that this is what I do. Essentially, people come to me because language is a challenge or working with a team is a challenge. And then I kind of slip it in because I realize that the conflict skills that we that we do under this leading out of drama banner, which is so good for me. Sorry, I'm just going to find out who that person is because it's very difficult. Uh, yes, Andrew. Uh, Andrew. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I think if we can build these skills across every level, we can really have functional workplaces. So I kind of sneak it in under the radar, even if you have English as a second language or you're from a different culture, it becomes a little bit more difficult. And with a model, it just allows you to go to that model. And I think the other thing that's important to remember that native English speakers are not comfortable in these environments either. So I think when you've got those extra barriers, it feels enormous, but just remember that even me who teaches it all the time, I'm going into conflict and often my reaction, my initial reaction is to recoil from it and not be part of it and think, oh, can I just not have that conversation? And then I remember I've got a model, I've got a process, I've learned this, I, I can do it. So it gives me the tools to go forward. And I think that's really important to remember because you don't need to keep avoiding it. And it just allows you to step into an environment where you can stand up. And like Paul and I were saying before, there's, you know, we're all a leader to somebody. I think that's that's not my quote, that's somebody way clever's quote. But how do we how do we recognize that and how do we step up and take responsibility for these things? So maybe that word responsibility, what how does that play into the conflict stuff for you, Paul? Um I I think responsibility is um one of the first things that goes out the window when conflict goes off the rails. Uh, and what I mean by that is confusion about who's responsible to whom for what. Um, and it's very easy for us to start to think that we're responsible for other people's behavior or that they're in some way responsible for ours when conflict is going poorly, when it's going badly. Uh, and many of us may have learned that at school, at home, growing up. That's just how we've learned to do it. Um, the only behavior that we are responsible for is our own behavior, but we're responsible to those around us for that behavior. Uh, and so that's that's the starting point for um, all of the other types of responsibility that we might um, that we might talk about. Yeah, and I, we were also having a chat about how does conflict come about at that very basic level? 
why why is there conflict uh i think the world's always changing i think we all, we want different things sometimes we don't communicate that sometimes things just change um and if there was no conflict there would be no growth every time these gaps open up it's a chance for us to create a better outcome out of this gap it's not about um managing conflict it's not about um, avoiding or shutting conflict down it's about being able to healthily exploit it in a way that honors everyone's dignity keeps everyone safe but creates a better outcome yeah and that's something when I'm teaching it I find that people often say I just don't have time to have that conversation with that person and again a quote that always comes up in my mind is with human beings, what is fast is slow and what is slow is fast. So you you almost can't afford to say that. There has to, well, of course, we're always juggling so many things and we're in these high pressure situations, but how can we take some time out to care enough about another person to sit down with them and hear what they have to say? Because that not only helps me resolve my problem faster in the long run, because the relationship is going to build, the trust is going to build, but also I think that person feels more empowered by that and then can go and be a better citizen in the society. I think I like putting it in that frame because it gives us that high level context to why we, why we should care. Absolutely. There's great, um, there's great research primarily from healthcare because um, this is a place where there's research and evaluation going on all the time, a little bit different to, to commercial business um, showing that cost per patient in hospitals that adopt compassionate approaches across the whole system drop their cost per patient by up to a third. Yeah. Um, and one of the major drivers is that of that is simply that if the clinician can have that conversation early and compassionately, which sometimes means slower, I actually have seen other research where it's it's not slower, it's simply it's saying something different in the same time that we would be saying something else. Yeah. Um, but that establishes enough rapport that it either identifies the real issue because like so many conflicts, just when a patient turns up, they may not tell you why they're really there until the last 10 seconds. Um, and it also engenders trust, which means that patients aren't then coming back saying, I didn't feel respected or cared for. And so I would like these other tests to kind of make up for that. I don't trust that doctor. Yeah. And those tests start to add up um, really significantly for costs. Um, so if we can build that trust early, then we can, we can um, really head off all of the collateral damage that comes with us not identifying it as a conflict and responding to it healthily early. Yeah, that's that's such an amazing practical application. And I think conflict often when we're speaking about it in this abstract, we actually need to tell stories. You know that I'm a big advocate of telling stories, but unless we can apply this to our own lives or if we can apply it to, you know, telling a story of how it worked in someone else's situation, I think that is also a really good way of of applying these ideas. So, I mean, I would encourage everyone to think about a situation that they've been in where they are either now in conflict or have been in conflict and, and how these kind of make them feel and, and ask questions around that. Maybe not specific scenarios, but think about it in, in the abstract to, to apply it to your own scenarios is really important. The At work, we're often involved in negotiations as well how, how do conflict and negotiations differ or how are they similar uh, negotiation is, is really just a strategic way of addressing a conflict uh, and many of the best negotiators you come across even in um, really hard-nosed corporate spheres will go about their negotiations using a uh, an open compassionate approach that allows for sort of co-creation of outcomes um, and maintains dignity for all the parties, even when someone is, is what you would view as losing that negotiation. Um, if you remove psychological safety from a negotiation or, or someone's dignity, then you don't end up with a win-lose. You will often end up with a lose-lose because someone might be quite happy to escalate something um, on principle because they feel disrespected or because um, they're not being heard. Yeah, that's enormous. I was working with a 
client and and it was early in the process because I normally do classes that last a number of weeks and we we meet weekly for a number of weeks so we have the opportunity to come back and and look at these scenarios and how people are applying these things and I had one manager who was saying nothing works with my team I just cannot get them to work in the way I want them to work and she had a very specific way of wanting them to work but equally it sounded kind of fair that work needed to be done uh, after hours needed to be entered into but people were just leaving and she said I've tried giving them all their freedom I've tried telling them what they need to do explicitly I've tried telling them to stay back after work but nothing works and I said have you tried the approach we've we've looked at and she said no it won't work she'd already resigned herself to saying no but what was really beautiful was that I didn't see her for a couple of weeks she was quite busy with other things obviously and she came back and she said Leonie you're going to love this story because I as much as our group was just I'm not going to say the word toxic, but it was getting there. There was a lot of trust was being lost. She said, we sat down after work one day for three hours. She said, we had the whole team, two senior managers and the rest of the team. And we all spoke openly about how we were struggling with what was going on and what we were angry about, what we were upset about, what we were frustrated by. And she said, after that went away, we then sat down and came up with a, with a to-do list or a, a rules for engagement within the team. And she said, it's working. People are engaged in the project and there's trust in the team again. Now, that's a happy story, but I think a lot of people ask me, can we guarantee that these conflict strategies or tools or models are going to be a success in every conflict that I engage myself in? The, the bad news is no. <laughs> um, we there there is yet to be a tool devised that allows us to control other people's behavior um, <laughs> but what we can do is control the process around it um, and that's where it's really helpful to be able to differentiate process or performance from outcomes uh, something that um, lots and lots of professional athletes I work with um, come to understand that they can only control their performance they can't control if there's someone better there um, on any given day uh, and that's the same with conflict. If we can work through it in a way where we are clear on the process and we can look at our own behavior and think, I have I have behaved healthily and well and taken good care of myself and my, my own well-being, then we might end up having to make other hard choices like leaving an organization, leaving a relationship, letting go of something. Um, and doing that healthily is is really important yeah i think um you know there's we we talk about good conflict and bad conflict and it's it's you know and this is all part of the process that paul and i work with the leading out of drama work and there's an area where we can really start to understand ourselves a lot better, I think, and, and how we can be more responsible for ourselves, but also for other people. So a lot of people ask me, does everybody have to know this process for it to work? And I know I have my answer, but what do you think, Paul? Uh, no, no, it's, um, it's, a, it's a skill and it's a, it's a set of behaviors that we can use. Uh, and as much as, um, it might sound a little bit pessimistic saying we can't control other people's behavior. When we control our own behavior, and I don't mean over control, I mean when we maintain healthy in our mindset and our behavior, even when it's hard or especially when it's hard, uh, then this allows us to vastly improve the odds of good outcomes. Um, and by modeling healthy behavior, we can have a really significant effect on the people around us, even without them knowing what we're doing. Mm. Uh, and likewise, if we if we model unhealthy behaviour, um, if we don't communicate, if we if we yell and scream, if we don't let go of ideas um, when they're clearly not working, then we're modelling a different sort of behaviour that makes it a lot harder for people to struggle with us. Yeah, I think the the comment I often get, like I said before, is this, this, I, how can you prove that this is going to work or, or how would this work? And I think what I've seen in my own life, now that I've been doing this work for so many years, 
there are certain relationships with art which are challenging, which are with people very close and dear to me. I mean, families are a place where that happens a lot. And I can definitely see that sometimes it feels like it's not working, but if you're loyal to it and you keep coming back and keep trying to build that trust and, and listening and being that open with, with the people around you, I really have seen big changes happen. And again, it's no guarantee that it's going to happen, but there is something about doing it over time and losing faith in it at times. But if you if you stay with it, it, it really does turn relationships around. And the personal is relevant in the professional. And I think sometimes we spend more time in the personal, but if we can bring all these amazing experiences from our personal lives to the workplace, I think the workplace can be a really amazing place, which is not to say it isn't an amazing place, but I think there are some challenges. Yeah, look, I think so. I think that um, it's it's become pretty generally accepted that we don't compartmentalise things, even if, we, even if we think we do. It all goes in the same bucket. Uh, and so um, there's obviously um, a balance about how much of ourselves we might bring to work or to a particular relationship, but um, skills that are generalizable across different settings are fantastic because we get better at them because we're using them more often. If I use these same skills with my young daughter, it's still practice um, and that pays dividends when I have to use them um, in a negotiation uh, or in, a, in an acute conflict situation. I love this idea of practicing behaviors. In fact, our last interview two months ago was definitely about our own behaviors and how to change behavior, but how to even role play it in certain times. So you can sort of practice it so you can apply it once that situation comes up. I mean, a lot of relationships, you keep butting your head up against the same experience over and over again. So if you do recognize it, step back, try something different at home or even with your recorder on your phone and then dive in. David, did you have a question? Sorry, I just noticed you put your video on. No, I, I just joined five okay. minutes ago. I'm just just, what you were trying to, just, just trying to catch up what you guys are talking about. Okay, cool. No problem. Um, that leads me back to thinking um, about an idea of different types of negotiations, which are well, as Donald Miller taught me, there are win-win and win-lose negotiations. And it's really important that you know which one you're in. Otherwise, you know, very, very poor outcomes are going to be achieved for you. I, um, just, uh, I really, oh, Charmaine, I'll come to you in a moment, Charmaine. I was thinking the work that we do is very very helpful for win-win negotiations. And, you know, I presume a lot of the workplace scenarios that we're in, we're in win-win scenarios. But Paul, you had a good example about a win-lose scenario where you were also able to apply these tools. No. Um, yes, I've, um, I, one thing I would say is I think that the occurrence of win-lose negotiations is pretty small. It's not, um, it's not particularly common, um, but when they do arise, it can be really helpful to really interrogate that and, and, and understand, is this really a win-lose situation? Um, because if someone's got to lose, there's a chance it might be us. So if we can reframe that negotiation to understand maybe there's a better outcome here. Um, and it reminds me of a um, of some of some time I was lucky enough to spend um, back when I was at university uh, at law school uh, with Professor Ian McDuff, who is the um, he's a professor of negotiation. I believe he is at the Singapore Management University at the moment, um, but has worked all over. Um, and I only ended up in his paper by accident. My father had died, and there was no other papers I could get into because I had um, I'd come back to university late. And someone said, if you go and ask Ian, he might be in. Um, and the first day we did a mock negotiation and he told one, um, half the class who were playing one role, um, one set of information, he told the other class, uh, the other half of the class, um, a different piece of information that shaped that what people were trying to get out of the negotiation. Uh, and it's really common to go into these negotiations with a bit of secrecy, not sharing information, 
Um, and sometimes we can't share it all. Sometimes there'll be a specific brief, or if you're in the middle of a restructure, you may know something that you cannot share with other people. Um, but understanding what we can share can allow us to identify um, different outcomes. Uh, and I remember that one when suddenly everyone realized that they were sitting on two opposite things. It was essentially um, an egg yolk and an egg shell, and each party needed one of those things, but not both. Um, and if you didn't share that information with the other party, you would never know that. It would become a win-lose negotiation. Um, when we find ourselves in situations where we can't share information with people, I think restructures are um, the most common place I see that, where a CEO um, or someone senior has got information they can't share. What we can always share is emotional experience without sharing any other information. And so being able to share with people that we care about them, we are invested in the relationship and it's important to us to take care of it. And I can't divulge the information you've just requested or I can't divulge more information than what I've just shared with you at this point, but I will when I can. Sometimes that's all we can do. It makes that person look so human, doesn't it? it? We and we can attach our faith to that person. Then I feel it does. Um, I recall one situation where a CEO, um, an organisation had been purchased, and um, everyone knew that there'd be a restructure, that people might be losing roles, losing their jobs, uh, and the CEO was really invested in helping everyone land on their feet, but hadn't shared more than that he'd simply said i'm doing everything i can and he'd send an email every week saying i'm doing everything i can i've met with um i've met with the purchaser this week and we're, we're doing these things at no point did he tell people that um he was stressed out about it as well or that he cared about them um and i was in a meeting where he finally did and he said actually i really i'm worried about this too and i'm so invested in making sure that we can all take care of each other as this happens and he said that at the start of the meeting, and he meant it, it was authentic, um, which is an important um, point about any of these skills, is that authenticity matters. Um, but it immediately felt like the windows had been opened, and you, and you could hear at least half the room audibly breathe out and think, oh, this guy has feelings. Um, and so that, um, that emotional underpinning of, of all conflict happens we have emotional reactions much quicker than we have cognitive uh, reasoning for them or processing of them. And that's simply because the neurons that handle emotions are short and fat. They translate um, a lot of information really quickly. Um, and the ones that have to do the thinking take a bit longer. When we start from a place of problem solving rather than healthy, authentic emotion, we solve the wrong problem more often than not. And we might solve it really well but it's the wrong problem. Mm. And so if you've ever had a conflict where you've thought you did a great job solving it, you came up with a good solution, it's not going to happen again. And then you turn around the next week and it happened again. And it's happened again. It's often because we're solving the wrong problem and we haven't taken time to figure out how we're feeling and how other people are feeling and how they would like to feel. Um, and so that's, that can be a really key um, starting point if what we're doing is not working. We might be doing a really great job, but we're just working on the wrong problem. Yeah, I often encourage people with talking about emotions. And I think as human beings from all around the world, from different cultures, we're all dissuaded on some level to talk about emotions growing up. And so I've actually got a, a wheel of emotions, which in just a bit of a vocabulary exercise, native speakers and non-native speakers alike, you know, it's really difficult to think about what is my emotion. And there are a lot on this wheel, but a lot of people really can't get to that point of sharing that emotion. And it's really curious that it takes a long time. Then when they do, they feel a bit exposed and they often ask me, but why do I have to talk about my feelings? Nobody's interested in my feelings. How do you respond to that statement? I'm, I'm going to assume that you, you might come across a similar thing. In fact, if, if I can ask something. Go ahead. Yeah. So what you're describing since the start is pretty much developing our ability to listen um, both in and outside of, of ourselves. And um, whereas for negotiation, I, I would disagree, but negotiation and conflict links that you've described earlier, for the rest of the time, it's really ability to listen in your employee, in your in your peers, and in your employer, 
and, and being human with both sides of things. Um, what you're just describing there in the Japanese culture, in fact, it's a challenge because as soon as you give your opinion, you lose your opinion. That's a, another cultural point of view that can probably integrate to, to, to your discussion there um, because this is pretty much the size of a country, not, not even personally, not even here, only locally with, with Australian. Um, I had the chance to travel and, and work in pretty much four different continents. So I've experienced really different culture. Each one, in fact, has to be perceived slightly different, but in each way, the listening capabilities is a key to go forward. Uh, but there are people where you have to give up. There is that point where in the discussion, you can't, you can't go further um, and you need to step out and, and ask to pretty much take a step back. You, you don't describe that too much into, into what you have said uh, until now that there is that point, that threshold where listening or trying to go forward is not any more productive with some people in some scenario that win-lose and, and the need for stepping back is, is also needed, isn't it? Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, there are times, um, and that goes back to the fact that we can only be responsible for our behavior. Sometimes we might walk into a situation with someone who is not ready to negotiate, uh, maybe not able to. Um, and I think one of the keys um, when we think about um, using compassion, negotiating with people and dealing with conflict healthily is it's an iterative process. We are not trying to solve an entire uh, major conflict in one conversation, but rather start small, figure out, hey, how are we experiencing this? How do we want to be experiencing this? What's important? Are there any non-negotiables here? Uh, and then build on that. Um, and so what we're really doing is starting to, to model and build shared process. And over time, um, we will um, increase the odds that we can start to deal with, with the really significant issues or with, with root causes. Um, what's amazing is quite often once that trust is built, someone might just jump straight to the end and say, actually, it's this. This is the problem. And I've seen that happen a couple of times. Um, and it's, it's fantastic when it does. It saves everyone a lot. Um, of, of time and stress. Like, how do you deal with those who refuse to communicate? So obviously when there's a conflict that occurred, you try to communicate to the other person. So I think that's why the meeting's called to communicate with compassion. So you kind of try and tell them um, within certain boundaries of confidentiality um, what's kind of going on. Um, but what if that person just shuts down on you completely? So um, you try to book a meeting with them, they don't accept or turn up. You try and call them, they don't pick up to the extent that, you know, um, you might be face-to-face -face in the office and you kind of tap them, but it's always like, oh, I'm busy. Can we talk a few minutes? Can we talk later? And then that's it. They never come back to you. How do you deal with that situation? Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Anita. That's a, it's a good question. Um, and there are a couple of aspects to that. Um, it's quite normal for a lot of people to struggle to express their emotion, um, which, which was what you were, you were asking about to start with, Leonie. And one of, the, um, one of the stronger forms of that can be that shutting down. Um, avoiding meetings or talking about things altogether it's hard to know whether that's a shutting down or someone's just avoiding it um, but when people make these choices they are um, so long as we're com communicating with them compassionately it should be pretty clear what choice they're making uh, and that allows us to iteratively clarify and and actually um, ask about that hey look I'm worried we've not been able to meet yet um, it's important to me um, can you let me know um, when is going to work? I'm willing to let go of time in my calendar anytime, um, but it's not negotiable that we talk about this. If someone's still not engaging with us, uh, then the question is, is it something we can let go of? Or is it something where we have to look at the broader ecosystem to, to escalate or make a different decision? Uh, and we're doing that not, um, not to attack or to manipulate, but simply because if someone's not taken a chance to engage with us that doesn't mean they're not responsible for their behavior yeah another element that I you know we come back to these emotions and it's it's a really complex area 
I often find if if somebody is if I'm butting up against them or they're butting up against me that I I can feel quite frustrated by that but I try and find what the emotion is inside me which if the first level is frustration it's probably not the deeper element of it often it's it's sadness because I don't want your workplace to be like that. And I don't want my own workplace to be like that. I'd really love that we create a place where you do feel comfortable to come to me and, and discuss what's going on. Like even saying something like that. I mean, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth. This is something I do in my scenario and it feels comfortable for me. Therefore, it's authentic for me. But I think looking deeper into how that's affecting you, it's that personal experience of it. And and, and that's where I like to go really high level, because I think what I'm saying is if everyone had great conflict skills, would we have a beautiful place to work in? And I think that's what makes me sad is that sometimes we don't. And I love being able to share these skills with people because it does come back to our, our basic human needs. And, you know, if if that's being created in the workplace, you know, there's there's many reasons for it, but all we can talk about is our own. And there's many emotions going on at any one time. It doesn't mean the only one is is anger. Um, so maybe, I mean, that's where that that emotional wheel, the emotions wheel is so helpful for me because sometimes I just can't put my finger on exactly what it is I'm feeling. And it just gives me a resource. Um, another, um, another, um useful strategy with with emotion is that for for us when we're experiencing emotion it's real um and so simply by validating what someone's feeling and saying i you know i really i really care that you are feeling frustrated and it, it impacts me and i want I'm, I'm here for you i want to talk about it more shows that we are listening and often some will say oh sorry i'm not even i'm not actually frustrated i'm worried about this project deadline i'm, I'm afraid there's something going on at home um, and so disclosing our own emotion um, may not always be the approach that we'll take um, and this is where skills are important skills are things that we learn and practice and we deploy based on all of our other skills that we've got uh, I'm not a surgeon, so when I train surgeons, I can't tell them how to perform the procedure. Uh, and so then it's up to them to integrate those skills to their existing body of knowledge. Um, and when we talk about diversity, neurodiversity is something that um, we are all increasingly aware of. Um, and so for um, people who are neurodiverse, expressing emotion might be quite difficult. Uh, and it's something that... Um, that for some people can be really challenging, but being able to validate someone else's emotion is another way of building that emotional safety amongst us. Mm -hmm. So we're using the skills that we've got. It's a strengths-based approach um, and any skills training should really be what we call a, like a recovery model. It's about how do I recover when I get it wrong, not a model for perfection. Because if it's about being perfect, then um, for all of us, it's really, we're never going to be perfect. So it's hard to start. Yeah, I think that's the other realization over time for me is that it's almost like now that I have these skills, there's no bad communication. Because if I offend somebody and I can see that they're offended, then I can recover that because I've got an ability to say something more. And again, coming back to the English second language world, it does feel like people hold back from saying anything because they feel they're going to say the wrong thing. But often that being able to say the wrong or allowing yourself to say the wrong thing and then knowing you can say more there's always time to say more to clarify or to to build on that but to stick with emotions a little bit there's a few questions around that um, how to manage your emotions during conflict so you can have a meaningful discussion to the point of resolution well I think we sort of discussed you know resolving conflict but rather you know struggling with somebody often my typical ESL teacher struggling with or, or butting against are the two options and and we're aiming for this so we're not looking to resolve the conflict we're looking to be in it is that how would you describe or how would you respond to that Paul um I agree and, and it's very hard to struggle with other people if we're not able to struggle with ourselves and sometimes when we're really invested or um, experiencing 
a really difficult situation, giving ourselves time to be able to sit with those emotions and go into those situations in a, in a way that is healthy. And that might be asking for time, saying, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I don't feel able to have this conversation right now, but I'm committed to doing it. Yeah, uh, and I think what you said in the beginning of the um, conflict is a gap between the way things are and the way we would like things to be. I think even within ourselves, we can feel that. So recognizing, oh, how do I want things to be? Because clearly I'm upset right now. How do I want things to be? Sorry, I think I cut you off there. Yeah, no, it's absolutely. Um, for for those of us who, who when we find ourselves really struggling with um, our emotions, we might feel a little bit overrun by them. It can be a really useful question to start to ask, how do I want to feel um, on the other side of this as we start to resolve it? Uh, and what we're doing then is harnessing all of that energy that is there for us that we are experiencing, but identifying a really healthy way to use it. Um, because if we do, um, if we do sit with it too long, it's going to become overwhelming. It's going to be really hard for people to struggle with us if they don't know what we would, what they can do to help, or what we would like. That's a really nice loop back to the beginning where we were talking about burnout. You know, if we're constantly using this energy to work against each other it's exhausting so there's there's really um good research starting to come out showing that the traditional um treatment for burnout was just rest um, and it doesn't work that well um and there's good evidence coming out now showing that actually uh helping people manage themselves and communicate with other people compassionately has a really significant effect on burnout. Um, one of the key aspects of burnout is that depersonalization. And when that happens, it's really hard to struggle with ourselves or with other people. Yeah, that's curious. Another question is when the communication is intense, how to be assertive in setting boundaries without hijacking the openness required to solve the conflict? That's a great question. Um, I um, I think that in those situations, it's one of the one of the real benefits we have is iterating, is starting small, um, and sometimes the best place to start with those ones is to have a discussion first about how we're going to have the discussion. Hey, I'm I'm really afraid of this discussion, and I, I want to feel like it's safe. Um, can we spend ten minutes before we even get into the conflict, just talking about how we're going to treat each other? Because it's not negotiable that we we do this in a way that we can both be um, safe and proud of. Yeah, I'm just imagining some more unhealthy environments. If they get pushed back on that, how do you then? Where do you go to after? And I'll, um, I'll caveat something after that. I have um, I've acted in mediations where that has happened, mm. um, and often a really clear restatement, but where the boundary is a bit clearer. You know, if um if that's not able to happen at this time, then we will need to reschedule because we're not prepared to have this discussion in a way that's going to cause more damage instead of create something better. Mm. Um, and that has, um, the mediation I'm thinking about was actually um, similar to one of the questions we had earlier where the other person was simply not ready, not willing to, um, to struggle with us uh, and it really went off the rails badly but the person uh, that I was uh, I was assisting there um, was able to walk away from that um, in a much better frame of mind and with really clear evidence on the record that this other party was just not willing to be part of the solution. Mm. Um, and so people are responsible for their behaviour in these ways as well. Yeah. Very formal. So that's like, in, once you go into these mediation, it sounds like you start involving, I don't know, HR, if it's a workplace or if not, some sort of third party who specializes in the mediation right because obviously the two parties try communicating and there's obviously a broken down communication um, and hence a third party that will have to be involved but most often like you know the old joke that you basically only go to HR when you start and when you leave <laughs> so you try to avoid HR um, during the period like um this is where it's not like I'm not too sure like I think um you know theoretically the first thought will be okay well is this like your manager or HR or someone who has an expertise in this area 
um, that you think of that you can tap into, but then you're kind of afraid of, you know, because it's really formal and all the consequences. Like outside of those mechanisms, like is there someone like, I don't know, is there some way around it? Like can you just invite some third party along without going through this formal? Because the mediation is very formal. It's like you almost have to report on that person. Um, yeah. So so it's very hard to, to, to speak with any detail about third parties without under, understanding the organisation, the legal framework, all those kinds of things. And I yeah. would discourage it. Um, the, if we can have these discussions struggling with each other and if we can do it when things are small, so if this means frequent conversations, uh, then we will diminish the likelihood of needing to get other people involved. Uh, but one thing I would also say is that it's easy to focus on the conflict part of using compassion skills. Um, we can use these skills when there's no conflict. And that means that we are modeling them to those around us and we're all getting better at them, which means when there is a conflict, we have a higher level of trust and we have a higher level of proficiency in dealing with things in a way that is healthy. Um, and so it's it's a lot like um, trying to find the person in the office who trained to use the defibrillator. You, they may have done it two years ago. They may have done it a year ago. Um, and so we want these skills to be fresh. We want to be using them all the time. Um, little things for big things um, because we get better at them that way. Um, there was a question I saw about um, can we use... Um, these kinds of skills um, to present to clients or to engage with an audience. Yeah. Uh, and that's a great place to practice. Um, we know that it works. Um, some of the skills, so the process communication model I mentioned before, um, that's used by speech writers, by, it's used by Pixar to write films. Um, it was used by Bill Clinton's speech writers and the people who wrote The West Wing, for example. Um, to better communicate with a broader range of people and to be able to um, increase the likelihood of getting their buy-in um, of, of, um, of connecting with them. Uh, and so we can use these things when there is no conflict. Uh, and that can be a really great place to, to start because there's less, um, there's less at risk. The other thing I would say to um, start building these skills um, in an organizational setting like, um, like that is to tell people we're doing it. Um, I often will have um, people say, oh, so how do I, um, how do I do this at work? You know, well, I, and I always say, are there people you can tell? Are there people that you work with closely that you trust? Who you can say, hey, I'm trying something different and I'm doing it with the best of intentions because that takes any questions about intentions off the table and it also engages them to support us. Uh, and if you, if you work in large organizations, you can think about it as being a complex system and the more little nodes around you that you can engage to help you, the greater the likelihood that you can start to affect that system around you. Yeah, that's huge. The point of saying what your intentions are at any point of the time. And that I think requires us to say more. You know, we, we often think we have to be concise and save time and get to the point really quickly. But often, even at the beginning of a meeting, if we just state our intentions, what we want from this meeting, it frames it so beautifully because then everybody is on the same wavelength of what we're trying to drive towards. So it's kind of a, a card you can play so that it doesn't end up in, a, in an untrusting environment because you've taken, like you say, any manipulation off the table or if there's any doubts, which nobody intentionally does the manipulation and nobody feels like they're going into a meeting thinking they're going to be manipulated, but it's all this insidious underhanded communication that can lead to such feelings so the clearer you are about your intentions I think that works a long way in negotiations sending in proposals I even apply these things well the leading out of drama that I'm familiar with in writing proposals and I deliberately keep it quite open and look it's not common but but from time to time some people will um intentionally try and manipulate but manipulation works um by confusing responsibility it, it works by 
starting to make it less clear about who is responsible for what or for whose behavior. And if we can maintain a healthy mindset on what we're responsible for, which is ourselves, our behavior, our commitments, and also what other people are responsible for, then it's very, very common for that type of manipulation to suddenly become very clear to everyone around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that is, it's not common, but um, I've absolutely seen it happen in, in large organizations where suddenly the lights go on uh, and um, people can see what's happening. Mm. Another good question I think is very apt. How do we manage conflict in a virtual hybrid working environment now that we've got half in the office, half at home and communication is just that much more difficult. Do you have any tips for the new way of working? It's hard. Um, I think all of the same things apply, trying to communicate regularly, trying to communicate when things are small or when there is no conflict Mm. Um, and um, in person as best we can, whether that's in person um, through a screen um, or not. there are certainly other, there are tools and technical solutions that help us to have visibility um, of what's going on. Um, but if we come back to that starting point of so much of, of, of conflict starting with emotion, talking to someone to figure out what's going on is, is generally going to be the, the best starting point. Mm. Um, but we can do that by email as well. Um, one of the great things that I am... Um, I really enjoy about conflict. I wouldn't say I've come to love it just yet, Leone, but um, <laughs> but there are people I work with closely around the world and every now and then someone makes a mistake. Sometimes it's me. And being able to get an email saying, hey, I'm really worried about this uh, and I'd like some clarity. And then they can detail it and tell me what's important. It immediately makes it clear, all oh, right, that's right. We're not going to attack each other. We're not going to manipulate. We're talking about the thing that has happened here. And we're using our skills and our tools to do this healthily to create something better. Yeah. An example of that for me was my golden rule is don't check emails before you go to bed and and guarantee that when I do it, something bad is happening. And I had spent quite a bit of time with a client. They weren't a client yet. They were hopefully going to become a client. They clearly really wanted to make a difference in their language and communication skills and ask for a proposal. I didn't hear back for a while, so I followed them up and asked how they were going with it. And I got a really brief and somewhat terse response saying, I won't be going ahead with the proposal. And I thought, ouch. And it was before I went to bed, so I was tired and I was upset. (laughs) And I almost shot an email straight back. And I know my rule, I know my behavioral rule is don't shoot an email straight back if you're feeling upset. Um, I slept on it and I did think about it through the night, which is also why I don't like reading my emails before I go to bed. But in the morning, I thought this guy, when we were face to face, was genuinely wanting to improve his experience of living in Australia and speaking another language and being able to not only connect better at work, but to connect better in his society and building new relationships and having a really good experience in Australia. And so I thought, ah, this doesn't add up somehow. He's not angry at me (laughs) or he's not getting his, his, but I can see there's a behavior here. So I was able to acknowledge maybe what he was experiencing and suggest that we get on another call because I'd love to hear more about what was going on for him. We did and 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 he ended up becoming my client. So just little experiences like that where I nearly just threw it back at him and got really upset, I waited and and wanted to know more. I think just wanting to know more of what's going on for the other person will really cement a trusting relationship. Of course not. A lot of the time we when I give these examples, I'm very mindful to not be giving you direct answers on how to do things. We're not there aren't certain sentences you can say. There's not certain responses to any situation that is absolutely right or wrong. You really do have to learn to, you know, get get a gut feeling on these things and, and how it's going to work well. But that model has just taught me so much about myself. And, and when I work with other people, very similar challenges come up time and again. So it's a really interesting exercise in psychology, I think, for our own psychology. And you don't need to know a lot about psychology, right, Paul? What do you, what do you think about that? Um, no, um, I um, any tool that you need a PhD in psychology to use is a poor tool. <laughs> yeah. um, 
I, I do have a background in psychology um, and um, I've seen lots of very, very elegant uh, diagrams and I've read a lot of papers um, of things that are, are completely useless in the real world. Um, they're great for research, they have value, but if you are in a conflict in the workplace and you have to go and read a paper, then there's a, we've got a problem here. Mm -hmm. um, that's why we focus on behaviours and on skills. Uh, and we can, for people who want to look at research, that's always something that we can do. There are some things that are really useful. Understanding um, heuristic processes, so the little shortcuts that our brains take to make sense of information around us, um, like biases, um, it can be really, really helpful. Um, the fundamental attribution error is um, is something that I wish I could um, I could work with every kid at school with um, or share in every business. And the fundamental attribution error is simply that when something happens to someone else, we think it must be their fault. But when it happens to us, we think that it must be the world's fault. Mm. Um, so when I get to work late, it's because traffic was bad. But when someone else gets to work late, it's because they're lazy and they slept in. Um, and I think that cultural differences can make it even easier for that to creep in, um, for people to make assumptions. Um, and there's lots of layers to that. Um, but I do think that it's these sorts of things we can have discussions about and start to talk about um, because when intent is clear, when it's clear that we actually are all trying, that removes a lot of confusion. Or it makes it really clear that maybe some people aren't trying and then we have different decisions to make. Mm. Yeah, I think a, a good application of that is when we, if, if, you ask, if you asked me if I thought I was judgmental, I'd say, no, I'm not judgmental. I don't judge others because we think it's a fundamentally a good quality in the society to not be judgmental. But then I, I hear my, I hear the voice in my mind being judgmental. And my partner and I started playing this game. If ever we're judging somebody, which I don't want to, hopefully it doesn't happen too often, but we then very quickly have learned to turn it around and say, ah, we're seeing that in that other person. How is that applicable to me? And I think that's one of those little heuristics that we've sort of played with a bit over time. Another one that I use an activity I do in, in the classroom often when people sort of go, yeah, but she's like this, you know, <laughs> and they start to get really upset about someone's behavior. I said, okay, well, let's make a list uh, uh, in response to this question. What would make someone like this behave in such a way? So I'm not saying what would make her do that. I'm saying what would make someone like this person, like any person behave like this in a situation like this. So I'm trying to remove myself from the situation as much as possible and just think what are all the options. And sometimes we've done it as a, we've really written down every every possibility and we've had 20 on the board. And then the, I can see the person sort of sit back and go, yeah, okay. <laughs> There's lots of possibilities here and I'm reading one. And I think that's, yeah, if we can learn to do that well out in ourselves, it could be a game changer for the big picture, but for ourselves, for the workplace and for the greater society, the three that we're looking at. I just want to have a quick look at some final, oh, we've gone out. Oh my goodness. Time flies. Time has flown. <laughs> um, there's so many more questions and we could no doubt sit here for another hour looking at them, but maybe just some final points to, to keep this conversation going. Um, I think learn to listen what's going on in your mind, learn to listen really to what the other person's doing. And I think what Paul said is to maybe acknowledge what you're seeing in the other person. And I liked your example before, Paul, because what you acknowledged in the other person, they were able to turn around and say, well, actually, no, it's not that, it's this other thing. You know, it just gives someone a point from which to, to move either in lean into you or to actually clarify for you. Is, do you have any other tips or final points that are, that are helpful for the audience maybe? Yes, uh, I think start with emotion. It's happening anyway, and if we don't start there, we're often missing a really valuable source of information about what's going on. That can mean sometimes practicing emotion. If there's things that um, that we've not been great at, grief is a, is a great example. Grief and loss is one that many of us haven't practiced. Anger is another one that many of us have not been able, have not learned how to do healthily. Um, we might have even grown up seeing it done unhealthily. Um, and so starting with emotion uh, and we don't need to justify it. 
Um, so when we hear ourselves justifying and say, oh, because here's all these reasons why I'm right and you're wrong, um, this is a really significant trap because it gets in the way of us being effective. Uh, and I think the final thing is just to be really clear about what's not negotiable, what's important, um, and to be kind to yourselves. It's, it's not about being perfect. It's about, it's, it's about just working on, uh, on ourselves, on the conflict, uh, to, do, to do better as we can, uh, to apologize when we need to. Um, and if anyone does have any, any questions or they want to, um, to go any deeper with any of these things, then they, they're, they're more than welcome to, uh, to email the only, um, or me and we can, we're happy to, happy to support you with it. Yeah. I'll make sure that I get your LinkedIn, um, URL out in the email that goes out to everyone after who's registered. Um, the other thing I would suggest just as to if we want to continue conversation in the chat, I'm just putting a link to a group that I've created and it's really a community group. We keep it really low, low cost. It, we do it every Tuesday at this same time. And the idea is just to read something and bring it along for a discussion. So if you want to do more around conflict, go read something and bring it to that group and talk to us about it. Um, I mean, Paul, you're welcome to join us. And, and I've actually, it's, I'm going to put a promo code here too. So it's uh, Quest 22. So it makes it $10 a month to come to that communication group. It's really just to keep a conversation going. The idea is to read something, explain it to the group, what, what, why you think it's important, why you think it's interesting, why you think it's helpful for the group, and then to facilitate a conversation. So we're trying to mock up the workplace as much as possible but just to get conversations flowing in english once a month so i'd look to, like to see you there a recording of this will go out to everyone and like i said i'll, I'll share paul's uh, url to his linkedin so you can stay connected with him too paul thank you thanks. so much thanks everyone thanks Leonie. yeah it's been great thanks for coming thanks everyone This was put together by Marchmade Collective.